Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody, this is Jeremy again, and I'm just popping in here at the beginning of the show to say thank you to everyone who has become a sustaining member of Intercepted. We have just been astonished at the level of support that has poured in. We have almost 1,600 people to date that have pledged their support to this program to keep it on the air, to expand what we do on Intercepted, and to keep us going strong with our critical mission to hold the powerful accountable to expose injustice, and to provide people with information that they can use to make informed decisions. And I want to let the people who have pledged their support know that your financial support of this program means that we will be able to keep this program totally free for anyone to listen to. We do not want to use a paywall. I really am committed to making this show available to anyone anywhere in the world that wants to hear it. We don't want to uh, carve off some of our content to say, well, only this is going to be for our exclusive supporters. We want to be able to make the information that you hear on this program every episode to be available to everyone. And by pledging your support to Intercepted, you are making that possible for people that may not be in a position to financially support this program, but depend on the information, depend on the diversity of viewpoints and the guests and the books that you hear about on this program. If you want to join the 1,600 people who have already become sustaining members of Intercepted, you can do that by going to theintercept.com slash join, become a sustaining member of Intercepted. We have some great thank you gifts, including a hoodie, digital downloads of our cold opens, what you hear at the beginning of of our program. There are stickers for your laptop with the Intercepted logo on them. But most importantly, you become a sustaining member of this program. If you're not in a position to contribute financially, it is still extremely valuable to tell your friends, hey, even tell your foes about this program. Use it to challenge your friends. Holidays are coming up. You can use some of the topics and information that you've heard on this program to argue with people, to take on issues that may be uncomfortable to discuss at the dinner table, but need to be discussed in the kind of time that we live in. Maybe this show will help you to change the minds of some of the people that play a very meaningful role in your life, but the Trump moment has caused big problems for you. Whatever your motivation is, we appreciate you supporting this program, and we promise to you to keep our pledge, and that is to bring you information that you can use to make informed decisions, information that holds the powerful accountable and that gives voice to the voiceless. Our aim for this fundraising drive is to get ourselves to more than 2,000 sustaining members. We're about 400 members away from it. If you want to join the ranks of the 1,600 people that have already become sustaining members of Intercepted, we urge you to go to the Intercept dot com slash join. If you can't afford to make a donation, tell people about the show, review us on all of the platforms where you listen to your podcasts, and also join our Facebook group, which is simply Intercepted Listeners, and you can discuss issues and news and ideas with other people that also listen to this show. I sometimes pop into those discussions, as do other 
uh, staff members here at Intercepted. You can join with other people that are like-minded or are there also because they want to have discussion or they want to have debate. Also, you can share our work on social media platforms. The biggest thing is letting people know. If you want to help us push to over 2,000 members, you can do so now by going to theintercept.com slash join. All right, I'm going to shut up right now. On with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the honor of introducing President George W. Bush. Oh, hey. Thank you all. Thank you. Okay. Padilla. Hi. Gracias. I'm here to talk to you about packs of stray dogs that control most of the major cities in North America. This effort is broad, systemic, and stealthy. If you see a stray dog, don't call the authorities. Approach it on your own with a rope or a broomstick. Ultimately, this assault won't succeed. Stray dogs, they're not your friend. Or they could be. With God's help. Thank you. George W. Bush loves his country. President Bush now and and the extended Bush family are acting as the conscience for the country. Nearly 461,000 men, women, and children died in Iraq. Only Trump can make you feel nostalgic for the Bush era. (laughs) I wish he were president now. I wish Mitt Romney were president. I wish John McCain were president. Who the hell would ever boo? George W. Bush. There's a path you take and a path not taken. The choice is up to you, my friend. Nights are long, but you might awake to a brand new life. Brand new life. A brand new life around This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 33 of Intercepted. We owe the families as much information as we can find out about what happened. And we owe the American people an explanation of what their men and women were doing at this particular time. Uh, And when I say that, I mean men and women in harm's way anywhere uh, in the world. They should know what the mission is and what we're trying to accomplish when we're there. Over the past week, there's been an intense focus on what exactly happened to four U.S. soldiers in the African nation of Niger on October 4th. What we have been told is very little, and what we've been told is based on information provided by the military and by the Trump administration. And what that picture looks like as of now is that a small group of special operations forces were on a sensitive mission in Niger, that they were traveling in so-called soft vehicles, meaning non-armored vehicles, and that they were ambushed. And during this ambush, three U.S. soldiers were killed. Two others were seriously wounded, and another soldier, Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, went missing, and his body was not recovered until a couple of days later. Now, what the exact nature of that mission was, or why they were in an unarmored vehicle, we do not know yet. 
and the loss of our troops uh, is under investigation. Uh, we in the Department of Defense like to know what we're talking about before we talk. And so we do not have all the accurate information yet. We will release it. In classic Donald Trump form, he has made the story about something other than what were they doing there. I was, look, I've called many people. And I would think that every one of them appreciated it. I was very surprised to see this, to be honest. He has attacked the widow of Sergeant Johnson after she publicly said that she was shocked when Trump appeared to not know her husband's name when he called her to offer his condolences. The president, she said, He knew what he signed up for, but it hurts anyways. And I was, it made me cry because I was very angry at the, the tone of his voice and how he said it. Like he, he, he couldn't remember my husband's name. The only way he remembered my husband's name because he told me he had my husband report in front of him. And that's when he actually said, La David. Which on the surface sounds like a very callous thing to say to a widow. Trump, for his part, says that he meant nothing but respect and that it was a dignified conversation. Trump and his allies have cast aspersions on Johnson's widow, as well as on her congresswoman, Frederica Wilson of Florida. And some of the attacks on the congresswoman have been vile, with one of Trump's sons saying on Twitter that she looks like a stripper. Real classy. But aside from the horrible attacks on a gold star widow, or these grotesque attacks on the appearance of Congresswoman Frederica Wilson that have been emanating from the administration or from the president's family or from his prominent supporters, this episode, meaning what happened in Niger and then the way that it has been covered in the media and discussed by politicians, it's actually a classic example of how covert U.S. operations are dealt with in general in the United States, both in the media and on Capitol Hill. You have senators and congressmen rushing to microphones to question, what were we doing in Niger? Why were the troops there? If you're a Democrat, it's what was Donald Trump doing sending U.S. troops into Niger? And and these congressmen feign ignorance as to the extent of the U.S. military footprint across the globe, particularly those Congress members that are on military committees or intelligence committees or oversight committees. They know exactly how extended U.S. military operations are across this world. So this level of feigned ignorance, it's either a symbol of total incompetence uh, as lawmakers, or it's a despicable act of partisan or political theater. Since 9-11, the United States has embraced the concept that Donald Rumsfeld famously sketched out in one of his snowflake memos that the world is a battlefield and that the U.S. has the right to send its commandos wherever, whenever, to kill whomever. We are, in a sense, seeing the definition of a, of a new battlefield in the world, a 20th, 21st century battlefield. And the U.S. has been doing this since George W. Bush, but through Barack Obama and through Donald Trump, with essentially no meaningful oversight or investigation from the U.S. Congress, except when something goes wrong. Listen to this. In 2009, the U.S. Special Operations Command had its forces deployed in 60 countries around the world. By the time Donald Trump was elected president, that number had swelled 
to 138 countries. That was under Barack Obama. And the number continues to rise under Donald Trump. U.S. commandos were doing covert operations in Niger under Barack Obama. And they were there under Donald Trump. In some countries, these commandos are categorized as trainers or advisors. That's what the U.S. called its troops that were deployed in the early stages of the Vietnam War, too. So take that phrase with a a grain of salt. But these forces also conduct raids, drone strikes, assassinations, kidnappings, all manner of covert operations. And the only time we ever really hear about it is when U.S. personnel die, when journalists or human rights groups document civilian deaths, or as in the case of the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound, the U.S. wants to declare victory and celebrate the awesomeness of its commandos or its covert actions. Now, some Democrats right now want to portray this situation in Niger as Trump's Benghazi. But I I think that's a, a very bad comparison. In fact, Benghazi should not even be viewed as Obama or Hillary's Benghazi. The real scandal here is that the U.S. does these operations all the time, all over the world. And we never pay any attention to it until something goes wrong or unless it's valuable for propaganda purposes. The family of the four soldiers killed in Niger have a right to know why their loved ones died. Sergeant LaDavid Johnson's widow has a right to know where her husband's body was for two days and why it wasn't recovered until then. In fact, all of us have a right to know the answer to that. But we also have a right to know why on earth the U.S. has commandos in a majority of the world's countries. By just chasing each incident where the CIA or the Joint Special Operations Command conducts an operation that we hear about, instead of actually investigating the entire program, nothing's ever going to change. It's the same bad apple theory from Abu Ghraib. Oh, it was an anomaly. Just a few soldiers did it. We'll prosecute the lowest ranking people and move on. It's the same thing. It's like a cat chasing a ball of yarn in the room. You're just focused on this one thing, but you're losing sight of the big picture. There's a direct arc that stretches from George W. Bush through Barack Obama to Donald Trump of covert actions done in secrecy with little to no oversight by the U.S. Congress or the courts. This entire system, the night raids, the drone strikes, the secret prisons, the snatching of people, all of it needs to be investigated and explained to the people. Niger won't be the last of these, not by a long shot. And part of the reason why is that the public is being taught to view these incidents as one-off disasters. Niger for Trump, Benghazi for Obama, and on and on. This is now the American way of waging wars. There are U.S. troops positioned in 138-plus countries right now. What are they doing there? Who's going to explain that? No one ever wants to touch that because then you need to ask questions about the fallacy of American exceptionalism and our nation's addiction to militarism. So the outrage is often episodic and it's used, particularly by politicians, to make short-term political points. Until Congress actually does its job and conducts an open, meaning public, and wide-ranging inquiry into what the hell the U.S. Special Operations Forces are doing in 138 countries or what the CIA is doing across the globe, then they're not doing their jobs. And that's been the reality for a long, long time under both Democrats and Republicans. (music) 
We're going to kick off today's show by taking a deep dive into the world of Vice President Mike Pence. The great investigative journalist Jane Mayer has a fascinating expose on Pence in the recent issue of The New Yorker magazine. The title of it is The Danger of President Mike Pence. Jane is one of the best journalists of our time, and she was one of the first reporters to crack open the CIA torture and extraordinary rendition program under Bush and Cheney. She has written a number of books. Her latest work has focused on investigating the Koch brothers and other shady right-wing or Republican financiers. Uh, Her most recent book is called Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Jane Mayer joins me now. Jane, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you so much for having me. What I really found extraordinary about your piece is this notion of Mike Pence, not really as a principled conservative Christian, but as a real opportunist willing to set aside what he claimed were his bedrock principles in favor of whatever his kind of corporate paymasters or political expediency dictates he should do. Is that your sense? Yeah, and that was a surprise to me, too. I mean, I think everybody had thought of him as kind of defining social conservatism and evangelical Christianity. And in fact, what the reporting showed was that he's very ambitious and he's made his deals when he needs to. And in fact, his whole career really has been nurtured, supported and sponsored by huge right wing corporate interests. And I hadn't realized that myself until I dug into it. There's a, There was a sense that Mike Pence was kind of this like shitty magic penny to buy the Christian rights sort of like calm with the idea of Trump being president. He definitely was. He was the bridge. He was the seal of good housekeeping that enabled the Christian right to come on board. And, you know, going to your first question about the surprise of how ambitious he was and how willing he was to cut deals when he needed to, I mean, it shouldn't have been a surprise because the biggest deal and the biggest sort of Faustian bargain that he's made was getting on the ticket with Donald Trump, who, of course, defines everything that Christian evangelicals say that they dislike, you know. His willingness to make that deal should have tipped everybody off. You were able to get some pretty powerful quotes or assertions from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He, of course, is the Democratic senator from Rhode Island. And one of the things that he said to you was that if Mike Pence were to become president, that the government would be run by the Koch brothers. Maybe you can unpack that and explain the connection between, because the Koch brothers aren't known as fanatical Christian supremacists. No, and I mean, and so isn't that interesting? The Kochs are libertarians, or you could call them neoliberals. They are supposedly people who believe in kind of social liberalism, but there they are having sponsored the career of Mike Pence. And I think it's a real tip off to what the Kochs really care about. The issue that matters to them is not any of the social issues, no matter what they're saying. What matters to them is allowing business to take over the power in the country and particularly their own business. So they're pushing back on regulations and they're pushing back on taxes and trying to shrink the power of the government and replace it with their own power. And Mike Pence has been willing to carry their water on that. I hadn't realized, despite writing Dark Money, a book about the Cokes, I hadn't realized the extent to which they were working hand in glove with Pence and vice versa and how it began. And it really goes back to 2009 in earnest. I mean, it starts before then in his working for think tanks that are funded by corporations and huge right-wing donors such as the Cokes. But in 2009, there was a piece of legislation moving forward in Congress that 
was a huge threat to coke industries, and that was a tax on carbon pollution, something that would make the fossil fuel companies like coke industries pay for what they were doing to the environment. And Pence really took up their cause in 2009, and he echoed their talking points. He took a petition that was created by the coke's main political group, Americans for Prosperity, and he got tons of signatures on it in Congress and eventually managed to help kill that bill in the Senate so it never happened. And also to kind of permanently align the Republican Party against doing anything to try to deal with climate change. That was a gift of major proportions to Coke Industries. That cemented his relationship with the Cokes. And they then started just pouring money into him. They sponsored the next phases of his career, and they really began to push for the idea of Pence himself becoming a presidential candidate, and they were hoping it would come out that way. But Pence kind of screwed it up. He goes back to Indiana, becomes governor, and he's really a failure. And it and he makes decisions and takes positions that hurt him so much that he can't run for president right away. Uh, you point out that Mike Pence was in Congress for 12 years and never, never once authored a successful bill. That's kind of astonishing when you realize, like, this guy was basically a failure in getting any legislation passed. However, he used every platform he had not to be good at that job, but to be kind of a shock troop for whoever his his funders were or wherever the support was coming from that he thought would most put him in the prime position to gain national recognition or national power. He actually rose to a pretty high position in the leadership, the number three position of the Republican House. And he used that position also to push the Republican Party far, far to the right. So you find him very early on supporting the rise of the Tea Party and speaking out at Tea Party rallies and talking about defunding the whole government. He wanted to defund Planned Parenthood or he was going to shut down the government, he said. We repealed Obamacare, lock, stock and barrel on the floor of the House of Representatives, and we voted to cut spending to pre-stimulus, pre-bailout levels, defunding Obamacare, and ending all public funding for Planned Parenthood of America. That's what we voted. So he's taking these radical positions that we, at the time, were considered shocking. But he's part of this whole effort to push the Republican Party in line with its far-right economic interests and push it further and further to the right. I read your piece, and I get the sense that he's kind of this far right-wing, almost Manchurian candidate, where it's like they've programmed someone, uh, you know, that that can pass as kind of a Christian for the needs of convincing people that he's with them. But really, he seems to do whatever the Koch brothers tell him to right now, or whoever else is paying the bills. Well, there is an economic fiscal side of the conservatism he espouses, and people hadn't paid that much attention to it. And it's just as radical as his views are on social issues. You know, many of the people that work for him are people who come directly out of the Coke world, So, which to me was very interesting in part because I really believe that the reason that Trump was elected was because he broke with the orthodoxy 
of the far-right donors. They had moved so far away from the base that I think there was an opening for Trump to run on, to be more of a populist, and to say things like, you need Social Security, you need Medicare. These things were ideas that really appealed to the base of the Republican Party and to many Americans who weren't even that political. And he also talked about the corruption of the government and how he was going to stick it to the big donors and specifically stick it to the Kochs. But he hasn't done that. So I was interested in why. And in particular, I think part of the reason is that he's naive about government. He has no experience in government. He's bored by the details. And who's at his side who really does understand it? It's Mike Pence. And so Mike Pence runs the transition and fills the Trump administration with people who are really Coke people. And so even though Trump has run a campaign that's populist, he's running a government that is Cokean in its nature and and more and more so. I mean, we see it with the so-called tax reform plan because you've really kind of got an infiltration going on in the Trump administration by the big old donor interests that have been trying to grab control for decades now. Talk about how Mike Pompeo ends up as CIA director and his connections to Pence and the Koch brothers. The reporting on this comes partly from a number of people I interviewed who were inside the transition team. And one of them in particular was saying to me, Mike Pompeo was not even on the radar for Trump. He wouldn't have known him from anybody else until like a couple days before he actually appointed him to be running the CIA. Um, He came in, he had a nice interview with Trump, and like a day or two later was named to run the CIA. He didn't know, you know, Trump wouldn't have known where he came from. But where did he come from? He was the congressman from Wichita, Kansas. He was the Koch's congressman. He's someone whose business the Koch's had helped support. Within the administration, he and Mike Pence are very close. And Pence has hosted an evangelical Bible study group that's for cabinet members, and Pompeo often comes to it. And it's led by a preacher named Ralph Drollinger, who has been incredibly controversial in California. He wrote some essays that suggested that women who served in the state legislature were sinners if they had children because they were leaving their children at home to do public service and that that was literally a sin. Yeah, I mean, talk about someone who's got sort of anti-female, old-fashioned and almost dark age ideas of women. That would be Ralph Drollinger. And there he is because Pence has sponsored him running a Bible study group. So it's interesting, there is a female member of it too, someone who you've written about, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education now, and she attends these sessions, but presumably her children are not little and at home. You talked uh, uh, to Steve Bannon for this piece, which I thought was quite interesting that Bannon agreed to talk to you, although in some ways maybe not surprising because Bannon now is threatening to try to run Senate candidates against everybody except Ted Cruz. He's his own particular kind of force. But Bannon was the big one who was saying, you know, the globalists inside the administration are the ones that Trump has to worry about and the globalists in the deep state. What were the insights you gained from Steve Bannon about everything that's happened in in the nine or 10 months of Trump? Well, I mean, specifically what Bannon said to me, I thought was just amazing, which was, he feared that Pence would be a president who would be owned by the Kochs. The thing is that Bannon has long been a critic of the Koch brothers because Bannon sees himself as a new kind of nationalist populist, and he sees the Kochs as hurting middle-class people 
And so he's in a different place. It's not to say that he doesn't have his own corporate sponsors. In fact, his biggest backer is Robert Mercer, the hedge fund magnate. But Mercer is more of a nationalist and a populist, I guess, to some extent. It's hard to know. But at any rate, Bannon comes out as as a critic of the sort of big corporate donors who he sees as pulling the party away from his people, the kind of working class and middle class white guys of the country. Uh, you know, one of the people that I've written a lot about, Eric Prince, is one of the names, the, the founder of the Blackwater Mercenary Company, one of the names that has been floated as as a potential candidate on Bannon's uh, slate, if you will, possibly in Michigan, but it looks more likely in in Wyoming. And uh, Eric Prince would regularly call in to Steve Bannon's radio show on Breitbart and pontificate on all sorts of issues. Turn to Eric Prince. Give us, Eric, you're a professional in this area. If you want to take the fight to ISIS, if we want to destroy ISIS, if they're the existential threat that they say they are to us, what do we do? Well, here's what the Trump administration needs to do, because I can't imagine the the Clinton administration contemplating actually ending the ISIS scourge. And it's not just a matter of cutting off the head of the snake. It's about chewing up and destroying the entire snake. It sort of was like akin to like Bin Laden's guys are dropping a tape off with Al Jazeera. Like Eric Prince would like call into Steve Bannon's show. And I would imagine that Eric Prince fully has bought into Bannon's kind of worldview, uh, you know, uh, particularly when it comes to kind of right wing libertarian populist nationalist tendencies. What's your sense overall of what Bannon is doing right now, given that he's become such a prominent figure and clearly has his own following? One of the things that Bannon has been fighting is what he calls the Empire Project. And when he was in the White House, he was pushing back against the idea of sort of endless war in endless number of countries, which he sees as taking the the lives of too many of the kinds of people who he's championing. And he was trying to privatize some of these conflicts and reduce the defense spending supposedly. I mean, this was the idea. And so he was pushing the idea that his friend Eric Prince would use his private mercenary company to take over at least security in some of these projects. And the military was dead set against it and created huge fights. But that's one place where the two of them are allied. Eric Prince also was a uh, a financier of Mike Pence's political career. And in fact, in 2004, in the aftermath of the Blackwater operatives being killed in Fallujah and strung up from the bridge, Mike Pence organized the welcome reception for Eric Prince onto Capitol Hill. And that's really when Eric Prince's mercenary business took off. And it was Mike Pence that welcomed him there, which is interesting given that Pence and Bannon seem to be seem to have been on the opposite ends of the spectrum ideologically within the Trump administration. I would have thought that Pence would have also sort of on this issue joined forces with Bannon to say, hey, General Mattis, you should consider our buddy Eric Prince here and what he's proposing. So that, I mean, that to me is fascinating. I actually don't think, I think you're onto something there because I don't think that Pence was dead set against Prince's idea. Pence attends the principal's committee meetings, which are where, you know, the, the the most important foreign policy arguments take place within the White House. And my sense was, and I think Bannon said to me at some point, that Pence was no fan of what he called the Empire Project, meaning this sort of endless expansion of of these, these wars, um, and that Pence was asking some tough questions about it. That's not to say that Pence was 
backing Prince particularly either. I mean, the thing about getting back to the very beginning of the question she raised, the thing about Pence is he's kind of Weasley about many positions. You know, um, he's not someone who you see an incredibly strong um, backbone who gets out front um, and 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 tells. For instance, um, President Trump, when he's wrong, he is he's very careful and very behind the scenes. But um, anyway, so they, they may have had more common ground on that than people realize. Who brought Pence and Trump together and how did Pence end up on that ticket? Well, to some extent, it was the Trump kids who really created that shotgun marriage. And according to the people that I was interviewing, Jared Kushner in particular had a longstanding family grievance against Chris Christie, who had prosecuted his father when Chris Christie was the U.S. attorney in in New Jersey. And so there was kind of a personal beef there. But yet Trump, it seems, really liked Christie and was kind of leaning that way. I actually interviewed Trump during that period, and he sounded very torn. And it turns out that even after Trump had had a sort of a, what was supposed to have been the big coming together with Pence, they'd had dinner, and then they'd had a family breakfast together, and the Trump family kids came in, and everybody was sort of on the same playbook, and word came out that Pence was going to take the job, as he said, in a heartbeat. That very night... Apparently, Trump called Chris Christie and continued sort of the romance and was saying, you know, are you ready? And Christie said, ready for what? And and Trump said, to do this thing with me. And Christie said, are you asking? And Trump sort of said, well, are you ready? And, you know, it was this kind of endless flirtation and stay by your phone, Trump said to Christie. It was like he couldn't quite get himself to be comfortable with Pence. And even after they named Pence publicly, Trump was still asking his advisors, you know, can I get out of this? Can I back out of it? Now, I got to be fair, though, to say since then, you know, Trump has been fully on board with Pence and considers it one of his best decisions, apparently, according to many people who I interviewed. And the description he's given about why he thinks Pence is so great, when Pence was speaking at the Republican National Convention, and I talked to uh, Newt Gingrich, who was behind the scenes talking to Trump when Pence was speaking, and Trump turned to him and said, isn't he perfect? He looks like he was sent by central casting. So Trump loves the way Pence looks like a vice president. Well, that sounds like the the thing you're really looking for, someone that just looks like a vice president. Um, <laughs> however, it underscores something that another historian you interviewed said that Pence is basically the sycophant in chief. He really is used by Trump on a regular basis. I don't think I've ever seen a vice president carted out as though he's at a pep rally to introduce the president anywhere near the numbers that Trump has carted Pence out. It's almost like he puts him in this position that's intended to say, here's my carnival barker or here's my hype man that's going to come out for a couple minutes and then the real king shows up. You know, one of the people I talked to, I tried to speak to some former vice presidents and one in particular, Walter Mondale, found it so demeaning because Mondale had actually tried to negotiate a contract when he became vice president with Jimmy Carter to make the role into a more substantial role and something that's more dignified. But he's watching Pence and he said to me, you know, what's he doing? I ask myself every day and he was, he looks at Pence as sort of acting like an MC for the president, you know, and um, it's not stupid, it's shrewd. 
He is the member of the White House team that has not gotten in trouble, as far as we know, with the president. He knows that the president likes to be flattered. And, you know, you can see probably biding his time. And that's why I ended the piece with the quote from the Bible that Pence keeps over his mantle in the vice presidential residence, which talks about how God has his future in mind. Mike Pence seems to have also been put in a position, particularly with the General Flynn situation, where either he was being lied to and then was sent to the wolves, basically, to repeat the lie in public, or he did know and took a bullet, essentially, for the president's reputation or the reputation of the administration. Is that your sense? I mean, it's hard to know for sure. There's one meeting that would clarify the answer to that, and we don't know exactly what happened there. But Pence was in a meeting at the White House when Trump announced that he wanted to get rid of James Comey as the head of the FBI. And he was angry about Comey doing an investigation into him and the Russian ties. And they cooked up the idea that they would get the Justice Department to go out front and recommend that he get rid of Comey. And that would give him some cover to do it. And it wouldn't just look like obstruction of justice. And Pence was in that meeting. But until we really know what he said, what he heard, what the conversation was like, it's very hard to know for sure whether he was, you know, party to obstruction or whether somehow he absented himself at the right moments. It's, it's just really hard to know. But at any rate, he came out and said... Let me be very clear that the president's decision to accept the recommendation of the deputy attorney general and the attorney general to remove Director Comey as the head of the FBI was based solely and exclusively on his commitment to the best interest of the American people. There were a few little weasel words there that give him some outs, but he basically spread the party line that gave the president cover. And then, of course, the president came out a few hours later and said, He's a showboat. He's a grandstander. I was going to fire Comey. My decision. Uh, There's no good time to do it, by the way. Which left. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Pence out there looking like a, you know, complete chump or a liar. And I think you have to know more before you can really say for sure. And I think we may know more at some point because I think Mueller's going to go into that meeting very carefully, and hopefully it will be more transparent, and then we'll see. There's a level of arrogance about the Russia investigation, specifically on Trump's part, that you know he himself has this arrogance about it, where either he knows that there's nothing there that's going to stick, or he just seems to believe that he'll be able to 
weather it with his Twitter account and by lying? I mean, what's your sense of what's going to happen there? I mean, are they going to get something to stick to Trump himself? Who knows? I mean, I'm not like in the prediction business, but I did interview Tony Schwartz, who wrote The Art of the Deal for Trump. And one of the things he talks about is how, for Trump, truth is so malleable. You know, he doesn't care really what's true, what's not true, what should be true. It's all kind of the same for him. Well, that's not how the courts work, though. (laughs) No, it's not. It seems like at the moment, you know, Mueller is pushing very hard against Paul Manafort and probably against General Mike Flynn. That seems to be where he's most likely to find sort of legal violations. But there is the possibility of an obstruction case here, obstruction by Trump and potentially obstruction by Pence. Neither of them are off the hook. I mean, one thing I can say about being a Washington reporter for The New Yorker is there's not an, a single uninteresting day these days. Jay Mayer, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us on Intercepted. Great to be with you. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Jane Mayer is an investigative journalist at The New Yorker magazine. Her latest piece is called The Danger of President Mike Pence, and her most recent book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. You are listening to Intercepted. When we come back, we're going to talk to the famed Chinese dissident Ai Weiwei. He has an incredible new documentary film called Human Flow. And we're also going to be talking to the drummer of the band Deerhoof. And we're going to hear some new music from them. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, this is Jeremy again, and I'm not going to take up much of your time. I just want to remind you that we are in the midst of our fundraising drive here, our membership support drive for this podcast for Intercepted. And we would be honored if uh, you join the ranks of the 1,600 or so people who have already become sustaining members of Intercepted. You can do that by going to the intercept.com slash join. Our goal is to try to get over 2,000 members this year that have become sustaining supporters of this program. We are just blown away by the level of support that we've already been offered, and we are so close to that goal that we've set for ourselves of 2,000 members, sustaining members of Intercepted by the end of this calendar year. If you are out there and you appreciate the show and you are in a financial position to support this program, particularly for someone or some people who aren't in a financial position to support it, your donation to this show keeps it free for everyone to listen to. Maybe you want to send a pledge note on behalf of a person in your life or a group that is engaged in a social justice struggle in your local community. Maybe you want to do a challenge grant where you pool together with some friends and you pool your resources and you say, we'll match dollar for dollar any contributions under this mission up to $2,000 or up to $5,000. Whatever level you can pledge at, we really appreciate it. Once again, I'll shut up. Back to the show. And we are back here on Intercepted. When the refugee crisis in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere is discussed in the U.S. media, it's often portrayed simply as masses of people fleeing the violence of groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab. But U.S. military actions, including the intense bombings that have taken place in a number of countries under both President Obama and President Trump, have played a major role in creating the conditions that have forced so many people to flee. 
not just ISIS, not just al-Qaeda, but the United States government. So too has the U.S. government and corporate support for dictators around the world, support for repressive security forces, and this massive flow of arms sales, both illicit and perfectly legal. Add to this, then, the increasingly deadly role that Russian forces are playing, particularly in Syria, and the world is witnessing a horrifying spike in the number of people documented to have been forcibly displaced from their homes, more than 65 million people, according to the United Nations, from Syria to South Sudan and Central America's Northern Triangle, more people than ever are fleeing violence, persecution, human rights abuses that are caused by their own governments, by terror groups, and by outside forces like the United States or Iran or Russia. They're also escaping the sometimes lethal impact of climate change. At the same time, political powers across the world, including in the United States and Europe, are building more walls or proposing the building of more walls, implementing harsh anti-immigrant and anti-refugee policies. At the same time, far-right politicians are using the refugee crisis to incite xenophobic fears, which then can lead to hate crimes. Chinese artist and human rights activist Ai Weiwei has spent his entire adult life under the watch of Chinese intelligence and security forces, and he's widely viewed as one of the most well-known dissidents in China. Ai Weiwei has a new film out that paints a harrowing portrait of the scale of these mass migrations that we're witnessing. The film is called Human Flow. And he timed the film's release with a gigantic public installation of his artworks throughout New York City. It's called Good Fences Make Good Neighbors. From a golden cage in New York Central Park to fences uh, erected at bus stops and 200 photographs from refugee camps Ai Weiwei's migrant-themed works around New York City force their way into high-traffic areas to disrupt the flow of people. Well, Intercepted's production assistant, Elise Swain, spoke to onlookers at one of those installations in Washington Square Park. Here's what people had to say about what they saw and felt being next to the artwork. Uh, so it looks like a giant birdcage uh, in the middle of the Washington Square Park arch. And at the bottom of the birdcage, about halfway through in the center, is a cutout mirrored on the inside. It's really beautiful. I think when you stand back, it does look like two people for me personally. To me, it looks like maybe two people or maybe one person with a backpack on. Like this nice uh, silhouette, if you was a human being or more of, of one human being walking like in a tunnel all together, we all like squeeze it coming through. When you go inside it, you see a reflection, but you're like, what? Um, you're distorted. But I think that reflection is pretty cool in terms of not only us feeling like these other people who are going through hell in their countries. This is the age of people like putting fences to prevent people from like crossing borders. And, and have to be in a cage for some reason to, as a protection of this crazy world we're living in. Confinement. That's why I did the cages because I've been in cages before. So not a good feeling. Hell no. Ai Weiwei's new film, Human Flow, is playing in cities across the United States and will soon be launching globally. And he joins us now. Ai Weiwei, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you. This is such an important film. 
I don't think I've ever seen a film that has portrayed in a human way the idea of numbers and mass forced migration. When you set out to make this film, was that part of what you were trying to make real to people who are not there? At the very beginning, I was、uh, very frustrated by situation and、uh, have a. Almost no knowledge about what refugees about, so I jumped in and started with my iPhone to to shooting the people get、uh, off the shore from the Syria war, and、uh, I realized this is going to be a large、uh, task to take, and、uh, you know it's、uh, with such a complexity. This extraordinary event that has unfolded has also impacted Europe in many ways. We're here right now on Lesbos Island. This is the point where half a million people, most of them refugees, set foot and entered Europe. And an extraordinary way that people have been coming through. And just the last year alone, over one million have come to Europe through the through the Mediterranean Sea. And although these are movements that we haven't seen in decades, in fact. It hasn't been since the Second World War that so many have fled and come to Europe. It's still something that we need to consider in the global context, where so many millions are actually displaced. So it ended up we traveled in 23 nations, 40 camps, and interviewed 600 people, and come out 900 hours of footage, and the the situation. Grows very dramatically. You have to do、uh, several locations at the same time. Now the film ha-、uh, doesn't really have recurring characters. You return to the scene, for instance, on the Macedonian border. How did you decide how to tell that story? I guess most refugee films are really focused on a individual character or a family or you know a story. Uh, as artists, you can have a painting, or you can have a photograph, or or you can have a、um, something, you know, more abstract, or in between. Sometimes it gets very large scale, and sometimes、uh, very intimate details. So it's a collage. It's I would say it's like a a broken mirror. You know, you have a lot of fragmentary flags in angles about the reality. On a human level, how did it affect you? Not not just what you showed on camera, because you're filming with your phone and you're also being filmed. But if you ignore the cameras, just as a human being, what was it like for you to witness what you saw and to be among、uh, these people that are forced from their homes? I was also a kind of refugee. My father was exiled、uh, as an anti-revolutionary poet, and、uh, I grew up、uh, with him in twenty years in in very hard condition. So when I met those people,、uh, they're so familiar. Whatever they do there, you know, their condition, they they're both physically and mentally can see myself in them or see them. In myself, so I've easy for me to communicate and、uh, take part of this、uh, whole production. One of the the lighter moments in the film, you're buying、uh, mandarins or oranges on the back of a from a guy on the back of a truck. It looks like,、um, or at a table. 
And my perception of it was that you were you knew that he was overcharging you, and you 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 kind of uh, in a very interesting way negotiated with him. I viewed that sort of as a metaphor for how these people are being ripped off uh, in general. Was was that at all what you were doing yeah, with that? Yeah, I think we carefully selected the part uh, uh, to have myself in. I my. My interaction with them is always serving some purpose. Like I try to pick up this fruit rather than as other one. He's trying to give me some what he wants to give to me, and、uh, you know it's very much like a selections of refugees、uh, in in the European、uh, process. And also he kind of doubt my money could be fake. You know he look at the you know the song to examine the. The money, so all those things、uh, is very little, but it shows、uh, a, a quality or or intention about this kind of distrust or selectively、uh, to always choosing in in those situation. You portray in a very strong way by using the Macedonian border when the European Union countries started shutting it down. Talk about that. Particular camp that you were in on the Macedonian border, and the fate of the people that were there. Why, why did they come there, and what happened? Most refugees, when they landed on Greece, Greece is not a country they want to be. They want to go to Germany or Sweden or you know all those uh, uh, nations already have more open、uh, attitude or maybe better condition for working. So they have to、uh, walking across this、uh, so-called Balkan road. So Macedonian border between Greece、uh, is a place they being stopped. The you know they suddenly shut off the fence, the door, and、uh, all people the flow stopped there. So uh, accumulated uh, about thirteen, fourteen thousand people. For months, without any explanation or or even with very limited、uh, life support, so that's the that's why、uh, we paid a lot of attention to that condition. The the officials came here and told him, "Look,、uh, there's no way you're gonna get papers to continue, so you're gonna be deported, either." You go voluntarily, or we arrest you. And yesterday, it started with police coming here and actively arresting people. They're very afraid of being brought back. I mean, there's a reason why these people are here. You know,、uh, the president of of the United States. He's a big fan of building walls and fences. And also, not only building walls, but also going to push away many migrants has been living in United States for decades, or even born here. Many of them contribute to U.S. economy. You know, they do jobs nobody want to do, and、uh, so those people is going to be pushed away by the the new policy. And he has this traveling ban, or also. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on.
you know, also uh, U.S. accept very little amount refugees. You really think uh, it's a kind of shameful for um, for such a big nation, powerful nation, most powerful nation in the on the earth, but rather not bear responsibility, not uh, do not have the vision, and uh, not uh, to have the leadership in dealing with a humanitarian uh, crisis. What's your biggest concern right now in China when it comes to basic liberties? Um, China has been established this new government uh, for uh, six, eight years, but still they never trust its own people. They never let them to vote. They don't have an independent judicial system, and uh, the army doesn't be belong to the country, but it belong to the party. And also, they don't have independent uh, media. You know, it's under always under very uh, heavy censorship in every aspect. And uh, I don't know how long they can survive that way, but uh, they have always been like that. Are you personally still facing surveillance and monitoring when you're inside China? Oh yes, uh, yeah. When I'm inside China, I should be the the most watched person or under most uh, surveillance, strongest surveillance possible because that, that's um, what they do, and uh, they still see me as a potential dangerous person. When you just think about it on a basic level, why are they so afraid of you? I think I present or reflect this notion of a freedom, uh, individual freedom and the freedom of speech, and uh, also about uh, creativity are really uh, questionable in, in this kind of totalitarian society, which really threatens the fundamental uh, possibility for them to stay. What were your thoughts when you when it became clear that Donald Trump had won the election and was going to be president of the United States? What was your immediate sort of thought about him? It's uh, quite a natural outcome of uh, long years um, giving up a political consciousness in the in the general sense. You know, U.S. has been. Or, or not only U.S., but also Europe has been in peaceful time for decades and they enjoyed this kind of huge uh, prosperity. But sometimes intellectually are giving up true ideas or thinking about uh, what its globalization is about. So then, you know, very easy to be used by politicians. For me, it's not a surprise. It's uh, because you, you can see many, many uh, places in Europe also uh, have this kind of uh, trend or tendency to have a far-right um, movement uh, come to power. When you think about the Chinese government, do you think of it in terms of left-wing or right-wing? I think they are all-time uh, uh, right wing, you know, there's no left wing. Uh, I also there's no left wing movement in the kind of society because uh, yes, there's a few figures which reflects this kind of uh, fight, but it can never be a, a movement in terms of uh, uh, thinking or or argument. You know, it's no argument. Whoever 
comes out, he's going to be immediately put in jail or you know has no, no chance. China is is such a powerful capitalist economy and is making so much of the goods for the United States. And no one ever talks uh, about the human rights in China. Trump just talks about China's ripping us off financially. But the U.S. economy in large part runs because of cheap Chinese labor that has at its center no workers' rights and terrible working conditions. But in this country, no one is talking about that, except here and there sometimes you have it. But artists sometimes talk about it. Occasionally, an article is written. But the main focus on China in the United States is, oh, China's becoming very powerful, and they're, and, and they're ripping us off financially. I think this is um, since uh, not only this administration, but the previous one saying, you know, they, are, they enjoy the deals they made with in China, and uh, they profited or, you know, the benefits are huge uh, because uh, explores uh, the those nations who who doesn't have uh, human rights, you know. Many things only can be done when the people is in this kind of situation. You know, they ruined uh, the part partially, you know, by, by doing this kind of business, yeah, ruined the human rights condition and also environmental uh, you know Pollution is everywhere in China. Food, water, and education is pretty bad. And uh, you know the 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 government is completely corrupted. So of course, U.S. is very clearly know that, and they enjoy that. You know, right. And it's part of why the United States is able to do what it does in the world is because they don't care about those issues. Yeah, which is true. They survives because. Uh, those nations uh, function like that. You know, as I've followed your work over the years, I, I always find it so fascinating that uh, you're perceived as a threat um, because it feels like uh, um, the reaction of the Chinese state to you is like from a different era in terms of like, like they're, they're making you m more powerful and more influential because they're targeting you. And it's why, like, why don't they get that? That their action against you elevates your platform. Um, Are you that big of a threat to them? I think uh, fundamentally, I'm big threat to to any power who, because I'm questioning their essence of why they're there, and uh, it's very harsh argument and threaten to their existence. But uh, they also sense it because I represent, uh, it's not me, but I represent kind of new intention to make a change. Why do you like working with your phone as a, a vehicle for shooting video? It's just convenient, you know. I I think uh, for artists, you conceptually are always very clear what kind of image you want. And also, you know, you think anything can make uh, an image which can be powerful. That doesn't have to be super high quality uh, cameras, which is, exists uh, everywhere now. But also can be a simple gesture or a close range uh, uh, shooting because film is almost like a, a street fight. If you really a street fight, you don't need uh, some powerful weapons. You maybe. You know, you grab sand, you sand, you, you have a break, you break, and, uh, you know, it's not, a, uh, it's really about that moment and that 
that little uh, thing you have to capture, you know. When you're in the United States and you're traveling around, what's the vibe that you feel? I'm sure it's different in different places, but how does it feel in this country? After being back to China from the United States for about 20-some years, 24 years, then come back to Europe and the United States, I I think this world are really, you know, we are living in different world. And, uh, you know, if you go to South America, you go to Africa, you go to Middle East, it's, it's, we are living in a several very different kind of world. And uh, in general speaking, the people here are quite uh, spoiled because a uh, long time lacking of any kind of challenge. And I think challenge is necessary for for a soul or a nation or, or individual. Uh, without challenge, we all become uh, uh, spoiled. What do you think should be done with all of these people that have had to flee their homes in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia. Like, what what would a what would a human response look like to the, any of this? I think there's uh, several uh, levels things need to be done. Uh, one is uh, at the top political level, globally, those leadership, the powerful nations, uh, they should make a decision to stop the war. You know, to stop the the famine, which is not difficult. All those wars are. I represents the interests from uh, others. You know, as we all know, if we look at top list of who selling those weapons and to whom, you know, it's just like uh, if you follow the money, then you see how this world is moving. So then U.S. certainly bears a major responsibility in this matter. If you talk about the Iraq war, still after decades, still Iraq is such a broken state and still uh, fighting. And, and Turkey, I mean, the United States sold enormous quantities of uh, weapons and military to, to Turkey to massacre and, and expel Kurds. Yes, and Turkey also is a very unstable situation. And many, many uh, nations, it's not uh, just one or two. Uh, and also in, in Syria, you know, has uh, all, all foreign uh, involvement in there. So make that war uh, have hundreds of thousands of people as casualty and push the, a few million people out. So if we don't stop those wars and we continuously build arms and selling arms, what do you expect? You know, all those things are, are, are made for ki- killing people, you know? Uh, I think U.S. has been pulling down the, the bombs larger than ever. Yeah, Trump just used this huge bomb that they called the Moab in Afghanistan. They were bragging about how great this big bomb was. Yeah, so you can see people celebrating those killings. And also not to talk about uh, nuclear warfare, you know, those uh, ex- um, uh, those uh, potential uh, dangerous threat to humanity is always there. If they have any sincerity or care, they should just uh, dismiss all those nuclear fire, uh, I mean bombs. You know, why we need to have it, who they want to kill is those kind of devastating uh, weapons. Whose work right now do you respect or do you pay attention to, either artists or writers, musicians? 
Sorry to say, I am very much interested in the art the artist. His name is Ivo Weisorg. I, I paid the full attention to you. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Ai Weiwei, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Ai Weiwei is a Chinese artist and political dissident. His documentary Human Flow is out now, and his installations in New York City will be up until February 11th of 2018. After more than two decades of being a band, the veteran indie rock quartet Deerhoof thought they'd try something different. Two weeks before their 14th LP, Mountain Moves, was set to drop, they surprise released it on their website at a pay-what-you-want price. The entirety of the proceeds were then donated to the Emergent Fund, a nonprofit that benefits campaigns whose missions are to defend the rights of vulnerable communities. It could be said that the unpredictability of Deerhoof is both an ode to their solidly leftist do-it-yourself principles and idiosyncratic music, which seems to joyfully gallop between art pop and punk and is something entirely of their own vibrant creation. Our producer Jack Desidoro spoke with Deerhoof's Greg Saunier about the songs of Mountain Moves and the power of creativity during the Trump moment. This is Greg, the drummer from Deerhoof. Yes, I would say that on Mountain Moves, maybe we were trying to be political with the songs, but... We've had a lot of songs about war, a lot of songs about immigration. Our singer, Satomi Matsuzaki, is a first-generation immigrant from Japan to the U.S. It's like we like to make music that would make a person want to sit up straight and like give them some energy, give them some strength when there are many things in their day-to-day existence that are not only sapping their energy, but meant to sap their energy. There's an economy of hopelessness, of producing hopelessness, that people are making money by creating hopelessness, creating a feeling of being overwhelmed and feeling that to even envision something better than what we have is uh, completely preposterous and unrealistic and should be abandoned immediately. Your dystopic creation doesn't fear you. It's kind of, I don't know, I just remember how much fear-mongering was the strategy of both parties. Both candidates were simply trying to scare people into voting for them by saying how scary it's going to be if the other person is president. And I felt that our intelligence was being insulted 24 hours a day for months and being projected at maximum volume by the corporate media. I told you to dance 400 ways So why would I listen when you say Worry, worry, baby (laughs) 
I Will Spite Survive, you know, obviously it's, it's kind of a joke on uh, I Will Survive, the, the disco era hit. I mean, that song was, of course, like a kind of an anthem about surviving a bad breakup. This one is more like meant to be a kind of anthem about uh, surviving a government that, depending on who you are, would prefer you to be dead. Uh, if you're someone who's sick or injured, it'd be better if you would die. If you're uh, the wrong race or wrong religion, it would be better if you were dead. And uh, if you can survive long enough for the people currently flush with wealth and power to themselves pass away, then there's some hope that the future may be better. And so it's kind of a message to them to please stay strong and stay alive uh, if you can. So anyway, here's that song, I Will Spite Survive. That was I Will Spite Survive by the band Deerhoof. 
And if you go to our episode page, we have an exclusive first look at their music video for the song. You can check it out at theintercept.com slash podcasts. And that does it for this week's show. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Tal Malad. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Laura Flynn is our associate producer. Lee Swain is our production assistant and graphic designer. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.